You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm not Andrew Lowen. I'm Sexy Irish Sean, opening up the episode this time because we had a conversation with Eric Geller of Short Hop Games, and we figured instead of just having one episode, we wanted to make it a two-parter. We cut it in half so that we could really dig into backer kit and pledge managers and i hope you find our continued conversation enlightening if you didn't check out the first episode go to crowdfundingnerds.com and you can see the first part there well that's enough for me let's get into it so you had 3202 project followers before you launched and you had a a, a really good conversion rate you had a 14 percent conversion rate and you should be that we see between let's say eight and ten percent usually around ten percent the 14th great especially as a first time creator and what was the biggest driver that brought uh, traffic to that notify me on launch page i honestly think it was probably the review campaign you know there is no one single driver that was the the biggest i mean the review campaign as a single item was probably the biggest driver because i mean we had review after review coming out leading up to the campaign and each each time that came, each time a review came out i'd i'd see the pre-launch number and it's hard to track that unfortunately mm-hmm. but each each time a, a preview or review came out that number would stream up so it was definitely definitely that review campaign that that boosted those numbers significantly did you spend a lot of money paying for reviewers or did you know, did you pay for some or did you trade their review for, you know, if you sent them a copy, they just did the review uh, for free or how much do you spend on reviewers? It was a mix. Um, so there is there is a range between, you know, reviewers saying, oh, I'll cover this. I'll cover this for free. Uh, I'll cover this in exchange for or I'd, I'd appreciate production copy. Some people, you know, were in that, you know, $50 to $200 for uh, for paid content and then there was you know a few that were in that you know 500 plus plus range that you know were the bigger bigger channels that we we got to cover the game but that so that was a smaller portion the paid paid content was a smaller portion of of our preview campaign but most most of the most of the previewers that we got were you know not paid or you know what what we ended up doing though is that we're we are giving a production copy to every reviewer that covered the game so that's that's going to be you know essentially a marketing expense but because someone who has already previewed the game, we're going to send them a production copy. They'll do a review of the production copy that creates a, a tail to our marketing to help with the sale of any additional copies that we manufacture. And it also creates a, a good tail leading into the expansion for Quest and Cannons as we lead into our next campaign. That's smart. You know, one of the things I found with my campaign is that some of the reviewers that asked to be paid, I felt like almost like their heart wasn't really in it, but they needed to keep doing it because of the money. Uh, you know, that's how they made money and and that sort of thing. Others that, you know, cost, it was like they just gave amazing content and it was some of the some of the best. Did you feel like, you know, some like the the money that you paid was worth it? Or did you feel like most of the, you know, I guess the needle moving content was free you know there's that balance point between you know how large of an audience 
does does someone have and it's like you can you have all that passion behind the content you're producing and we we got some probably some of our best content from people who didn't charge us anything for preview but we still got great i think we got great content for the people from the people that we did pay as well like we got we got um on launch or near launch we got we did some paid content to uh david leavitt um on on twitter he did you know a live live stream him playing the whole game um and he would retweet his his audience every single time that you know a, a new section of his 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 live stream like a new part of the game so he was constantly re-engaging his his twitter audience and i i saw the needle move up like every single time that he did that so that's you know that was that was a pay, that was paid content and it, it that was well worth the money and like i could see it being well worth the money so that that was really cool that's excellent and now you did something extra with uh one reviewer in particular you gave you kind of put him into the game right or you you paid homage to his yeah channel you want to talk about that and tell yeah tell so who it is and what you did we we had a, a rate we have a race of characters uh called delves which is you know back to the the floofier a more approachable we we went for this you know familiar yet original kind of vibe with our with our fantasy world um, so we combined animals with fantasy races, so delves, duck elves. So we already had something that kind of connected with with Quackalope, which is he's he's been growing in popular. You know, he's been meteoric in his rise, which has been really cool to see. So I I thought it would be a cool idea to engage his audience in a way that we could also do some world building with people, where we're like, hey, we can make a Quackalope character. You know, give one of our delves antlers and engage with his audience to help design this character. So we that that was a big part of you know building that you know organic community and getting content creator you know personally involved. Like when he did his video, he's like, "I'm playing as I'm playing as the Quackalope, of course." So that that was that was really fun, and we got you know we engaged with it was an easy way to engage directly with an established community. Cause we, we, we did multiple posts being like, Hey, which, which character pose, like what character, like, like clothing do you like? What colors? Like, so there was a bunch of different options that people could, could give their input on. So it created a lot of good conversation around quests and cannons when we were doing that. I love that, you know, involving a community, it helps people care about what it is that you have, you know, but in addition to that, like really you went a step further, you made a popular content reviewer that often will reject projects. I talk to Jesse every so often and often about business and marketing and that sort of thing. And he rejects, I would say, you know, four to five projects, 80% of the projects that come across his desk, he does not accept. And you know, part of it's because they're not ready. Other parts are because maybe he's, it's not the type of game for him. You know, he's, you know, loves campaign style games and other things. But one of the the big ways to get into a reviewer's good graces is to involve their community and make their community want to see content about your stuff. Totally. You know, I think that there's a, a certain level of, I don't know, uh, sucking up i guess i don't know you know where <laughs> yeah you're like, no hey, that's what i was thinking Jesse, I, that's I what i was thinking too right? no, but yeah. but you didn't do that 
necessarily you know there's this i don't know like a hubristic aspect if uh somebody is vain and they're like oh it's got me in it so therefore i'll cover it you didn't take that approach but what you did was hey i have a fun idea and you went to their community and you were like what do you think and it was really a community driven thing that would as a content creator endear me to what it is that you were doing because you weren't just trying to in essence take advantage of my position by making a a look like like if i put a tom vassal character and i'm like hey tom you know cover it um it's uh it's like sending the wrong message to the content creator but what you did you engaged the community and it was a very organic thing which i saw and i thought was worth calling out as a really thank you a good implementation yeah, I mean, of the idea we already had like a a jackalope character too so like making a quackalope character was almost on brand for us so i mean it really was it like fits into the lore of our world easily enough that it it kind of was an organic way to even expand our own world building in a in a fun way so it was it was good on on both parts we got to make a quackalope character that appealed to the quackalope audience and it allowed us to think of a way how to connect that into our own own world building in a, in a fun way so Eric, you talked about before we started just some of the challenges you've encountered with BackerKit. Do you want to maybe cover some of that? And do you have any advice to people that maybe you could help them as they approach BackerKit? And just give some just some basic general advice, things you found challenging that you wish you knew beforehand and that could help someone else as they approach BackerKit. We probably made a mistake here in shutting off BackerKit ads uh, too early. Um, that that was one of the one of the first. So we did backer kit marketing support, and we're doing backer kit the pledge manager as well. So I think we we shut off backer kit ads too early, even though they weren't performing all too great. I think that constant trickle of pledges coming in would have benefited our campaign, especially during the mid campaign slump where you can get to a point where if your campaign starts to sta stagnate, which our campaign kind of did. To an extent, then you have people jumping ship because it's not growing and moving towards stretch goals or, you know, whatever psychological marketing type stuff there there is. So just having that additional stream, even if the ads aren't the best return on ad spend, it there's kind of more more layers to that than just the direct return on ad spend. You know, return on ad spend for a lot of people is the king of why they would pay for ads in the first place. I also had a similar experience with BackerKit. In addition to marketing ourselves on Facebook and whatnot, we also used BackerKit as a another marketing source. And on day one, two, three, it was it was really good. But then, you know, the mid campaign kind of hit and the return on investment kind of fell off. And I eventually, you know, we tried a few things here and there to change, but we ended up pausing those ads and then reactivating them like in the last 72 hours just you know like let's try to hit all you know fire on all cylinders and that that's what we thing. ended up doing too and i don't know if if that was the best decision for us i feel like if if the campaign can keep momentum without it then maybe it's worthwhile but even if you're effectively paying people to buy your game like almost, like even one-to-one -one, I feel like just having that consistent padding on the campaign boosts your numbers more with Kickstarter's algorithm. And I don't, I don't know what the actual, you know, mm -hmm. if 
at, at what level you could measure that. But I think that's something, some part of the calculus that would be worthwhile to look at. That's a great point. A lot, uh, something that a lot of people neglect is that, you know, you, we did this study, I think it was one of our first articles that we had written on crowdfundingnerds.com, which um, basically said that if you bring six backers to your campaign, Kickstarter itself will bring about four. And so, uh, you know, so it would bring four more. So you, in essence, generate 60% of your backers and Kickstarter generates 40. And at the at the end that credits the user for most of the stuff, you would bring eight backers to the table when Kickstarter would bring two. But if you're paying one person, you know, if you're in essence, if you're breaking even on ad spend, which means you're losing money, you know, because you have to actually print, you know, make right, and ship the, the thing that you're right. Yeah you might get a backer from Kickstarter, which would then balance the kind of the equation or set it maybe not in full balance, but really close or maybe even, you know, a positive if you're if you're above one to one. And that's something. And also, in addition to that, you have what I call, I don't maybe it's this is not the right way to put it, but like a reverse return on investment or like a back end ROI, which would be if you have more backers then you get to actually manufacture a larger quantity, oh, which totally. you would save there. Yep, definitely. And yeah, and that makes a, a big difference if you print, you know, 500 versus 1,000, 1,000 versus 2,000. You know, it's a, a pretty big difference on the bottom line. The other thing to consider is that someone who backs your, your you know, your first game or your second game or, or whatever is someone that is most likely, you know, if you're going to, if you deliver them a good game and a good experience, they're going to be a returning customer. So it's not just that, you know, ideally you want each, each game to be its own, ideally profitable product, but that, that mark, that initial, especially initially that initial marketing is, is going to be an investment that you're building for a long standing, you know, customer relationship with, with your backers that you you produce a game that is a good experience and they're going to come back at ideally less marketing dollars for the next campaign. Cause that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest parts about running, running a Kickstarter is that you're building that marketing engine. That's going to come back and support you campaign after campaign, or, you know, support your brand in the future. That is, is one of the real, I think one of the true values to running a Kickstarter. And the other thing is they also have friends, right? So oh, they yeah, enjoy that's the game, right. they're going to tell their friends and they, they play of the course. game. They enjoy it. They're going to tell their friends. I, I actually think the original Pokemon did a great job with this co concept. You know, you have Pokemon blue and Pokemon red. And the goal was to capture all the Pokemon, but you physically couldn't capture all the Pokemon because one of the Pokemon was on the other game. So yep, you had to genius. have a friend who had the other game genius. and you had to like hook your, your Game Boys up. Yep. Use the cord. Uh, yeah, yeah. The link cable. <laughs> <And> show them <laughs> gauge. <laughs> and you had, you had to like battle them or, or trade. But it's, it's a great way to basically incentivize the selling of two games. And maybe that should be something that people think about moving forward with Kickstarters having basically two games but slightly different so people actually have to buy two and they can give one to a friend kind of i have have an idea for a game of the wings that is is kind of like that each it would be like it's this like mint mint tin dungeon crawl where you can you can purchase separate characters as a as standalone solo games but then when you combine them together then you have this multiplayer 
dungeon crawl so if you, you know, awesome. collect all the the characters you can combine them into this like cool multi-party dungeon crawl cool very cool thinking along corporate lines mcdonald's at this this has been a while since i heard this stat but at the time they spent two billion dollars a year on advertising in the united states and but they estimated to bring a new customer in for the very first time it cost them 42 dollars that would be 42 dollars to get somebody to buy a big mac you know which is for those who aren't familiar let's say it's about a five dollar purchase to you know you spend 42 dollars to get somebody to spend five dollars in your in your place but to get that person to return they estimated it only cost them three dollars to get them to come back a second time and you know mcdonald's they're they're trying to hook children on chicken nuggets so <laughs> that you buy the 20 piece when you're in college and you know what i mean the yep. um the marketing is very worthwhile as long as you know you continue to return and i think in the same way like you were saying you're investing in your email list you're investing in you know every single person on your email list or every single email on your list is a person with an opinion and a a capacity for reasoning and that kind of thing and if you give them a great experience they're much more likely to trust you a second time around and in addition to that, they're much more likely to market for you in the future. I think this totally. is one of the places that, or one of the areas that certain companies right now, you've got Chip Theory Games that has put out its Too Many Bones unbreakable campaign on GameFound that's well over a million and a half dollars, like 1.7 million as, at the time of this recording. But um, you've got companies like that that have a very loyal player base and customer base that do all the marketing for them. You know, right. there's just no way to spend enough money on Facebook to make $2 million in a, on a Kickstarter. Nope. You have to have your people do all of the work for you. You know, you have to have the people trust your message that what you're saying is true and that your game is awesome. And why is, how do I know? It's because my friend said it was awesome or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, all right, I'm going to finally jump in to their series of games now. Stonemaier Games does it well, and a lot of other companies do a great job. Some companies don't do that very well, though. I, I think, I feel like some companies that build customer loyalty in some areas, or, you know, let's say with the first game, they build customer loyalty. Let's say Quest and Cannons in, in particular. You have a certain, uh, you know, 930 backers that are, that eventually are going to get their product. You've got maybe maybe you'll produce 1,500 units or 2,000 and you'll have more to sell. And then you've got future sales and whatnot. But all of those people were interested in buying, let's say, a, a, we'll say a gateway competitive, like pirate fantasy themed exploration game, right? You know, and I know it's, it's more than that, but then, you know, let's say you come up with a game that's, um, you know, themed fairies and dreamland and it is deep four hour strategy epic experience the people that you brought in from your first campaign aren't really going to translate to the second one because the games are just like you know chalk and cheese yeah chalk and cheese is exactly <laughs> what i was going to say thank you sexy ever sean <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's a big part of building a brand is that and, and understanding your brand and how you market your brand to your customer base and making sure that the products that you produce stay on brand. Um, and if you move, you know, if you 
alter your brand, you make sure that you are communicating with your customer base on how you're altering your brand and why it's important to your brand and, and what value it provides to to your customers. So I, I think that's a big thing there. And I mean, that's that's what we're going to be doing with Quest and Canons is, you know, staying on brand. But part of our brand is also creating entry points in the, into the hobby and then growing people's experience into the hobby. So while we can pull in the entry, the entry people, we're going to over time, one, bring the entry people on a journey, but also reach out more to more and more to seasoned players as our game, you know, our game series grow into, into that space, you know, organically. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about Backerkit. I know that we had discussed kind of the marketing angle of Backerkit. I know that with the pledge manager that you've kind of experienced difficulty. And let's just kind of talk about that because you mentioned before we started that, you know, we hadn't really spent a lot of time covering pledge manager issues. And I let's just do it, you know, live for everyone. First off, Backerkit is a really, the Backerkit pledge manager is a really robust system that they have created uh gives you a lot of tools and features and they have they have a really solid help system with it what i'm personally trying to you know right now i'm i'm near the end of of the pledge manager i think and they have a review process and like all all that stuff to make sure that you're not sending out something that's gonna cause you catastrophic failure because mm-hmm. uh, honestly the pledge manager is probably one of the scarier parts because if you set something wrong set something up wrong on there and you don't charge enough shipping or you have it so that people can order stuff in a way that is not how you're going to manufacture it you're going to run into a lot of issues yep so that's that's you know the nervous part of like oh what happens when you know what happens if you know one of my backers gets a you know a pledge mm-hmm. survey and it leads them somewhere they shouldn't be or it doesn't allow them to buy the products that I want them to be able to buy. So that like kind of like on the is, opposite end if they spend or if they buy the products but it costs like nine hundred dollars in shipping or yeah you know, or- you know you know and there's there's a test test uh environment within backer kit that allows you to look at all of that which is really really useful i guess right right now the main thing that i'm kind of looking at is like how do i craft like the pledge survey questions so that leads people into the right areas Um, mainly my retail pledge survey i'm trying to figure out what are the most Mm -hmm. important questions to ask a a retailer or someone who pledged at the retail level maybe for people who aren't familiar with backer kit at all maybe you want to go into what exactly is a survey and why is it so important to get those details correct? Yeah. So the like so just to go right from the beginning, the main point of a pledge manager is really to one collect people's shipping addresses, um, but it's also a way to ha- allow them to purchase any additional add-ons. Like if someone or if someone didn't have the money or wanted to wait. Uh, during the Kickstarter, it gives them the opportunity to access the pledge manager when they do have money or when they are looking to get the game, where they can now go into you know what's effectively a pre-order store and still support your project. So the pledge manager is a big part of you know coming out after the Kickstarter and one collecting those shipping addresses so you know where to send your games after you have them manufactured you know if you have add-ons or if you have any products that have you know potentially multiple details that 
need to be articulated in some way or give people options. Like if you're selling a shirt and you need to figure yeah, out their size or exactly. what style, yeah. then the pledge manager allows you to ask people those questions so that you can collect all that data and manufacture exactly what your backers want. And, and also send the information in a nice spreadsheet to your fulfillment company, the totally. shipping company that's going to actually deliver those products. You need to tell them how to pack this package for that customer and where to send it and, and all of that. I think that the pledge manager is almost like e-commerce. You know, yep. if you build a website that has a store, it, you know, it should collect all of the information, but it does more than that, that helps you upsell and other things like that too. I think that it's all, all in, in all like an essential piece, not an optional piece, but an essential piece of a definitely essential. Campaign. I mean, you, with with BackerKit, they also and I'm not as familiar with GameFound, but with BackerKit, they also allow you to set up, uh, you know, an actual pre-order store that can be linked into mm -hmm. your Kickstarter page, so that anyone that goes to your Kickstarter page can click this pre-order button, be taken to a pre-order store that is, you know, before you know before your pledge manager goes up, and your your pledge manager will be sent out to. To all your backers but anyone who didn't who missed the campaign entirely can go to the kickstarter page click the pre-order store button and still buy you know pre-order your game uh, yeah. so that's that's a huge value on add-on and then um on top so what, what we're going to be doing as well is that we're going to extend our stretch goals through our while our pre-order and pledge manager is up. So when anyone goes to our pre-order store, the pledge manager, they're going to see an updated funding goal that's going to relate to to more you know more stretch goals that we unlock. Um, and we're going to try and give give people the the best possible version of quests and cannons that we can. And that's just another way that we're going to do that. Very cool. It's a great way to kind of win the favor of your fans, you know, the people that, you know, believe in you and, you know, it's a, maybe a few pennies for you added cost, but it's a, you know, it means a lot to a fan to, to for you to give them the best version. I think that a lot of people, they, they would appreciate that, but I think in a lot of ways as a, you know, as the company voice, it's your job to articulate what it is that you're doing for them that you know that is above and beyond i think that a lot of people do you know a really nice thing but you really need to explain why that it's a nice thing you know yeah <laughs> in, definitely in a way um, i mean we we really want to offer acrylic standees in the standard version of quest and cannons i mean it's it would just be great from a durability standpoint especially because we're making a game that is you know a gateway game that we're we're marketing to be hey this game is going to get to your tables a lot and you know just speaking you know as frankly as possible chipboard standees see wear over time unfortunately it is it is what it is um so having acrylic standees in the standard pledge would be you know tops and we're going to do we're going to do everything we can to to get them in there. Yeah, you know, one other thing with the pledge manager is that you collect a pledge for your game on Kickstarter or GameFound or whatever you're using. And then afterward on BackerKit. So, oh, by the way, the uh Kickstarter or whatever, you know, crowdfunding system is going to bill that customer and pay you after the campaign is over. It's like 3 weeks after the campaign's over you get paid. And with backer kit it's the same way it's going to kind of authorize the credit card 
of the backer for whatever additional things that they want, but it's not going to charge their credit card until a time in the future that you lock the pledge manager, you take the actual final orders and that sort of thing. This is really advantageous because it helps you kind of future-proof yourself against shipping. For example, Deliverance, I ran the campaign for Deliverance. And then the last week of the campaign, it was like, hey, by the way, shipping prices are are like astronomically high. And I was able to give people an estimate of shipping. But if, you know, if I needed to, I would have been able to say, hey, guys, I know I told you $9, but I need to charge you 11 for the shipping. Or if you got nine or eleven dollars shipping for deliverance, I would be amazed. You yeah. need to oh, give no. me your, the... your contacts for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did was we actually buried a lot of the shipping cost in the cost of the game because gotcha. the game itself, I basically put it at the retail price. It was like a dollar off the retail price. But I made shipping so inexpensive and I absorbed you know, basically, if it was $9 that I'm charging for shipping out of an, an $89 product, I'm basically paying about $20 for shipping. So it's, a, what is it, $98, but, you know, that I get for the game plus shipping. But I'm actually paying 20 bucks for that last mile shipping. In addition to that, I'm paying freight, which is normally $2, but it's <laughs> now 12 right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, it's nuts. Uh, okay. ho- hopefully that um, calms down at least yeah. a little bit. By the time yeah, we're it, fulfilling, but who knows? Definitely. And you know, a little update for others that might that might be interested about freight, and this is where my head is at. I am looking to delay my manufacturing of deliverance by probably like two months. I was planning on manufacturing between, you know, and then shipping between like January to March, somewhere somewhere between January and March. And what is more likely is I am probably going to be shipping at the start of the summertime or, you know, spring, summer, because the shipping prices are astronomically high. Normally it's like, I mean, you know, in the, what I'll call the before times, before COVID, (laughs) you know, you've got $3,000 a shipping container. Yeah. BC. Um, The, and then now it's uh, up to like $35,000 for a single container. And that is not very conducive to, having anything made in china because it's not like you know it's it's a it's a fixed cost it's it scales the fixed the cost scales with the amount you produce so if you produce 5000 units you need one container which is $35,000 if you produce 15000 units you need three containers which is $105,000 right so it's not something that gets cheaper as you produce more it's it's just becomes like you know more expensive than your payroll um for a company so but with the port of los angeles and long beach switching to 24 7 operation that is going to slowly right now there are like half a million containers sitting on boats right outside the port of los angeles and now that they moved to 24 7 operations and finally getting their stuff together don't know why it took them so long but they're they're working on it they are going to start to get ahead in addition to that the uh, the governor of Florida is saying, hey, boats that are sitting off the coast of Los Angeles, why don't you come and drop them off over here? We'll give you incentives to come do that because it's going to take you less time to go from Los Angeles through the Panama Canal to a port in Florida than it will from the you know waters in Los Angeles to the port of Los Angeles. That's wild. So, yeah. <laughs> 
and you know those ships are carrying four billion dollars of of stuff each right of merchandise each so um i foresee the shipping costs will go down the bottlenecks will decrease um there are people that are making good moves you know like the governor of florida is really smart for his state he's gonna i'm sure he's gonna get ships that move you know that decide okay we're going here we'll send some there we'll go some to la some to long beach some over to wherever the ports are in florida i know quartermaster logistics is a fulfillment house is based in florida so that'll be nice but um the um you know, so that shipping crisis to give people kind of a, a little bit of an update from the way that I see it um, also as a board game designer and, and, you know, with uh, fulfillment and logistics on my plate right now, that is what is coming in, in my view. And I think that we're looking more like shipping prices will start dropping around like February, um, you know, maybe uh, March because the, um, you know, the uh, Christmas if you haven't bought your Christmas presents now, they're not going to be on the shelves. <laughs> they're going to be out in the sea in front of Los Angeles, yep. uh, the port of Los Angeles. So I think that the Christmas insanity is going to extend through like February this year. That's what I'm seeing too and hearing from people as well. As as we looked at our, our timeline for Quest and Cannons, that was something that we looked at. And you know, ideally, we beat the time. Like we, we said, we're going to fulfill games by December of, of next year ideally we beat that timeline um by a fair margin um but i think it was safer to say hey longer timeline than shorter timeline and and miss it than being you know longer you know always you know under promise over deliver right yeah and or you know just super duper important to just let people know what's going on so that there's no surprises if there is a surprise just be upfront with people and communicate versus just be silent you know so Anyway, um, really appreciate all the time, Eric. And I think yeah, with, thanks for having uh, me on. Yeah, with that, we'll probably have to wrap. And I know that Richard is in the desert, but we have this canned Richard that we're going to unleash. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.